glad y'all are here. Um, I'm excited for this morning. I'm excited for uh, this, this topic for us to tackle. Uh, but let me, let me open us in prayer. God, um, I'm thankful for mornings that um, are, are filled with joy and children singing, um, even in the midst of, of rain. And some of us probably looking out the window going, this isn't the day I would pick to be here. Yeah, we're here. And we're here for you. Uh, we're here uh, because of what you've done what you've accomplished on our behalf through your son and um, what we come here to worship today. So God, we love you. We pray for your spirit to be in and amongst us right now to do a work that no amount of just preaching will do to, to transform our hearts and to draw us closer to you. I pray all this in your name. Amen. About 12 years ago, I was heading to Orlando to go to a conference uh, that I'd been wanting to attend. And the few days I was down there in Orlando were great. It was, a, it was a good conference. And as I was heading back, I get to the airport in Orlando and go through TSA, go through that whole process, and, uh, and then get on the little tram at the Orlando airport, takes you to the, the outskirt terminals and, and go and have some lunch before I'm going to get on my plane. As I'm gathering my things to go head to my gate, I realized I can't find my ID. And this was still the time when they were checking IDs both at TSA and to actually get on the plane. So I'm like, oh no, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and at, at this moment, I, I, I panic. I, I don't panic very easily, but... I'm, I'm, I'm panicking. I'm, I'm really scared about how I'm going to pull this one off. And I finally thought, oh, okay, perhaps the last place I remember seeing it, the old G.I. Joe trick, the last place I remember seeing it was in the bins when we went through the TSA process. So I'm like, okay, I'll get on the train, head back to the TSA counter. Now, when you go through that process, when you get back to where the TSA is, there's this very thick red line. I says, no return as soon as you pass this red line, which is also anxiety-inducing in that moment to go, okay, I, I, I am betting, I am hoping that my ID is going to be on the other side of this line because I don't know what I'm going to do, and I'm probably going to make my situation worse as soon as I cross this line. And I get over there, and I'm like, hey, I went through here like 30 minutes ago. Has anybody found any ID? And the TSA guy was simply gave me a no. He was sympathetic. I wasn't difficult. Uh, he wasn't being difficult with me. He was doing his job, but he's like, is there any other way that you can prove who you are? I'm like, no. I mean, I have, I have no way to do that. I, I, don't, I don't have my, any other form of ID to, to kind of prove it. I don't have a passport or something on me. So now my scenario is worse. Now it's that much more stressful in this moment. And I walked through every spot I had been. The TSA guy's like, okay, where did you go? Once again, it's very G.I. Joe. Where did you go? What did you pass? Uh, what, what were the things that, that you might have left it at? And eventually we're like, okay, maybe, maybe when I ordered my, my lunch or whatever, maybe I put my ID down at that point. And so we called the little restaurant and they're like, yeah, we actually have it. And it worked out perfectly. I end up getting back on my plane. But it raised a question that I think pertains to today. How do, how do we prove who we are? What, what's the metric? What's the, this is the identifier of who we are. 
And I don't mean our driver's license or, or what our career is or what other people tell us about who we are. Jesus actually talks to his disciples. He says, Here, here's who you are. Here's how to identify yourself. He said it wouldn't be by what they believed. It wouldn't be by um, the, all the good they hoped to do in their future. That wasn't the identifiers. It wouldn't be by the protests that they would have. It wouldn't be by the Christmas lights hanging on their house. He said they would identify ourselves by one word, love. It would be an identifier. It's tempting to think there's more to it, but there's not. And love isn't something we just fall into. Love is something that we, as a people, become. And it's so central to Jesus because at its very core, it's who God is. It's one of the few like, direct definitions that we get about who God is. Now, I first want to recognize that this is widely sort of a consistent sentiment inside and outside the church, right? God is love is like the least controversial thing to possibly say about God. And hear me, the Bible's very clear. God is love. So we're not saying anything, trying to be like, oh, we're adopting the, the nature of the culture. No, like this is what the Bible says about God too. So we're affirming that and all of his actions, everything overflows out of that. And if you were to look up the definition of love, it would say a score of zero in tennis and squash, which is real helpful, right? For real. I have no clue why they called that love. Just call it zero. But um, tennis never made sense to me. But there's all sorts of ways. There's also, it was so dad jokey of me. But there are all sorts of ways that, that people do talk about love in the cultural milieu around us. Probably the, the, the most shallow is love being sort of tolerance. That is certainly the trend today, that loving others is just sort of tolerating whatever they believe or to do or anything along those lies, uh, lines. But there are a lot more biblical pictures of love and, and biblical pictures that even the culture at large, would, we would all agree on. Like, like love is the sacrifice of self for the sake of the other. And, and plenty of people would go, yes, that, that is love. Right? We, we see it in stories and pictures of military people willing to lay down their lives for the sake of their brothers and sisters in the military. Or a parent willing to lay down their life for their child. It, it is something that transcends the, just church definitions. It is a wide cultural definition. Romantic love. It's certainly in, in culture and, and in the church. We, we would have similar definitions of what true romantic love might look like, or brotherly love and affections towards others. All these pictures are not unique ideas. Usually we can even identify love. We can identify when it's lacking. Maybe we were raised in a house without the love of a parent. We're still dealing with some of the shrapnel from that experience. Maybe uh, the experience of marriage that might feel loveless or everything feels combated or strained or, or maybe the opposite, everything feels indifferent. But we also equally can identify love when it happens. In the depths of, of, of a marriage or a relationship or friendships where we see just sweet and tender affection and sacrifice for each other, we, we see those. There's stories about those in, in and outside the church. The secular world even tells those same stories. There's something transcendent about the concept. And it's such a big deal because it is who God is. God is love. Now, we say things a lot at Christmas time like the reason for the season. Do you know what the reason for the season is? Sin. 
Yes, the reason for the season is sin. That's true. Did you read my notes? How did you know that? Um, yeah. You're going to say what? Mercedes. Lexus, uh, December to remember. Um, yeah, all the things. All, by the way, the SNL bit about the Lexus to December to remember is one of the best. Um, anyways, um, yeah, because we, we have these stories where the angels show up to deliver these messages to folks like Mary and to Joseph or to shepherds and others. And one of the central pieces when they come to talk is, is uh, like Matthew 1, uh, uh, 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is Matthew, who is a predominantly Jewish audience. After years of waiting for this coming Messiah, after years of sitting through silence at this point, after this deep longing for somebody to come and conquer, what does Matthew start with? It's time for salvation from your sin. And you will name him Jesus, and he will save the world from their sin. That's the reason. It's the reason for this season. Why did God come? Because your sin, my sin, our sin. And sin, to be clear, is a, is a breach of love itself. We were created in the image of a three persons, one God trinity, <laughs> a relational God who has this endless love for itself and, and all the persons of the Trinity. And he created us in that image, this relational God. And in that place, we, we had the right love for God. We had a right love for each other. Adam and Eve, that was, that was the picture that was in the garden for us. But sin crept in, a rejection. Even asking the question, I think, does God really love us? If God, didn't, if God really loved us, he wouldn't withhold something from us. And we rejected God. There's rebellion against the love of God. And sin enters in. It breaches the love relationship we have with God. It breaches the love relationships we have with each other. And it's something we often completely remove from the Christmas story. I don't know how often you see sin as a part of your Christmas decorations, right? A bunch of lights on the house and sin in giant letters, right? Or the black ornament on the tree that's just dripping, it's a sin ornament, oh yeah, or sin wrapping paper with everything listed on top of it. <laughs> let's, let's open that one, that's exciting. Or maybe you have the little laser pointer things, and it just says all the different sins shooting across the house instead of snowflakes. But, but that's just not where we go. It's almost like we've removed sin from the season. And when we think of the things we find at Christmas, do you, do you think it's sins on most people's Christmas lists? Do we even sing about it? I would actually argue the older you get in your hymns, the more Christmas hymns do sing about it. Like, uh, God rest ye, merry gentlemen, probably one of the oldest Christmas hymns we have. We'll say things like, remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Or perhaps this one, long lay the world in sin and error, pining, longing, <laughs> till he appeared and the soul felt worth. And if we lose the reason for the season, I think we'll lose the, the motive for the season, which is really the center of today. You see, if the reason for the season is sin, then the motive for the season is love. We lay in a world that has experienced the effects of sin, the pollution of sin. We, we are all participants in that. We no longer have a direct connection to God. We no longer have a direct connection 
for, to each other, but then God moves towards us and gives us a savior. Um, we're going to spend just a little bit in 1 John 4. If you don't know where 1 John is, find Revelation and just go left just a little bit. And this won't be as expositional as I tend to be, as I kind of mentioned last week, um, but uh, this will be sort of the, the grounding text for us today. 1 John 4, starting at verse 7. <clears throat> Beloved, let us one, love one another, for love is from God. And if you're a highlighter, circler, whatever in your Bible, do it there. Where does love come from? What is the source of love? God. John, John doesn't leave that vague for us. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, God, uh, love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So how do we know? God, okay, it's made manifest for us to see. How do, how do we know that God loves us? What is the thing we could point to and say, yes, that's how God loves us? That God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. This is love. This is the game changer in history. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. Here, this is love. Love is not coming each week and after week after week to church, not doing all these things. It is the fact that God loved us. You want to see what love truly is? Look at the fact that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because we have given, he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So how do we know that God loves us? How has he demonstrated and showed us? According to this, because Christmas Day happened. He sent the one and only son to be the savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe that God, uh, the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Which is another line to circle and underline. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. So why do we love? Because he first loved us. And I think for many of us, we're not living into the fullness of what is possible for us as believers. Because we just don't realize the fullness of which we are actually loved. The greatest thing I think we're called to be and to do or be the people of love and, and, to, and, to, and to live that out. We love God. We love our neighbor. But we can't do that, I would argue, without actually realizing how extravagant the first move, the love towards us actually was. And at Christmas, it's the perfect season for us to sit and reflect, to realize that God in Emmanuel and coming to us made the move of love first. Something that God was going to do to reconcile the world to him. And what makes a, a sort of a good gift at Christmas? Is it, is it how useful the gift is? 
to how expensive maybe the gift is. As much as I love the office, I don't use it as much as I probably could in the analogies that go through my brain. Um, but, but today is like a perfect example of that. In the episode of the Christmas party, uh, in the office, everyone has to get somebody a gift for somebody else in the office. And it's all thoughtful, it's all special, sort of unique gifts for everybody. And then Michael, the boss, shows up, and he's like, hey, we're just going to do um, White Elephant, Yankee Swap, whatever, whatever name you have for, for the practice. So everybody bought these very personalized gifts that now make no sense in the practice of Yankee Swap. And everybody had a $20 limit, but Michael decided to buy an iPod for somebody uh, as part of it. So there's an iPod and then all these $20 very personalized gifts. And so obviously the, the game of White Elephant turned into who gets the iPod. And, and Pam, one of the main characters, uh, ends up sort of choosing the iPod at some point. And in that same moment, Jim, who's like this main love interest towards her, had made this very personalized, specific gift for Pam in that moment. And so Pam, sort of as the episode goes, has to decide what the greater gift is in this moment. The iPod, that's great value, certainly. It's, it's, it's expensive. Or this tea kettle that carries with it very personalized, individual, intentional gifts, where the motivation, the motivation for, for the gift, what's really behind it, is, is this love that he has. And, and she eventually chooses the kettle and says, I made the right choice. It's very sweet. Because what made that gift good, what made that gift meaningful, what made that gift um, um, the, the truest gift that she could choose was the motivation actually behind the gift. The iPod was a nice want. Nothing wrong with the iPod, it's great. But perhaps someone who deeply loves and knows you, knows what your heart truly needs and feels when it comes to love. And what happened on Christmas, God saw the greatest need. God, God saw where our hearts were, and then he sends his son. Why? Because he so loved the world. He loved us too much to leave us in the mess that we had made in this world. And perhaps from God, we, we get our wants and needs a bit backwards. Because I think sometimes, and I, I, I do this all the time, I think if God so loved the world, then blank would take place. And there's all sorts of things we could throw in there. And hear me, most of them are actually really important, really legitimate wants. If God so loved the world, he would put a stop to children being destroyed by war. If God so loved the world, cancer would no longer be a thing. If God so loved the world, abuse would be ended and abusers would be dealt with. If God so loved the world, those things would happen. I want all those things. I want a lot of them badly. But perhaps we're blaming God for a broken world that he actually came to redeem. Because what is the root of all of those things? It's, it's the same thing that lives in you and lives in me. It's It's sin. And his kingdom is breaking into this world. It's moving forward. How is it moving forward? Through a loving collection of people, of a people who have been transformed by the love and grace that God has actually shown up with by turning them into people of love and sending them as messengers of that. That's what he said. He even says his, his love would be, uh, John says his love would be perfected or a better rendering made complete in us. 
We are the fulfillment of that, but we'll get there in a second. But God came to answer the sin problem. And this matters so much to you and me, I think for many of us. Perhaps we've been taught a a picture that we've had in our heads, that we're supposed to love this angry God, that this God is in this constant angry state with the world. And we have to love a God we can never live up to. We have to love a God who we're never going to meet his expectations. And the only thing that gets in the way of this angry God is Jesus. Now, hear me. I am all for Jesus being our atonement. (laughs) I'm all for Jesus being the only way to pay for our sins. I am all about those statements. I am all about that theology. He is our great mediator. But according to God, or according to John... We love because why? God first loved us. And that's very different than some of what I hear from particularly the theological tribe I run in. Not because God was angry at us and we, out of fear, uh, we responded with some sort of devotional practice and repentance. That's not the theology that we see presented in the letters. And perhaps we don't get how backwards God's economy actually is on this. Let's even look at sort of the perceptions of, of God through history. As, as, as the, the Bible's being formed, as God is speaking to his people, he, he's saying, look, I am holy. I'm set apart. I am different than what you guys know. Well, how is he different? Because I'll tell you what, you have all your Greek gods, Phoenician gods, Canaanite gods, Egyptian gods, all those sort of things. Every other god. And guess what is not a defining feature of any of those gods? Their love towards humanity. None of them. It's just not the language that's ever used. Did Zeus love the world? Did Apollo love the world? What about Baal? What about Ra? Never. Just wasn't an attribute that was discussed. They were grumpy, kind of angry gods. They were fighting with each other. Every now and then they just wanted to smite all the people who didn't live how they wanted them to and didn't offer the right sacrifices. And I think at times... Some of the the theology we bring to the table might be slightly more pagan than it is Bible. And perhaps we've forgotten that one of the key features that makes our God holy, set apart, different, is that he loves. And so this Christmas, you can sit (laughs) in your sin, in your error, and we can approach this holiday where we're pining for something else. And there's all sorts of ways we do that. We pine after the next gift or the Lexus or another car, another person, another thing that's going to make us whole. And most of us navigate the season with that. But the problem isn't external. The problem is primarily internal. And there's good news for God's people. That's, that's the best part of Christmas. It's good tidings. It's good news. The greatest gift of Christmas is to repent from the mess that you and I are in, yes, but to accept what God has done for us and what he has now made us to be. I think the the trouble is most of us have a really hard time accepting this because we, we still sin, right? We still sin our lives. And so the enemy likes to say, sinner. There's still brokenness in our lives, so the enemy likes to come along and say, broken. But if we are in Christ, if we have believed in what Christ has accomplished for us, that God says to you, saint, 
God says to you, new creation, not the old broken thing. No matter what is going on in your life, most of us make a pretty good mess of our own lives. And so some of these defaults are really easy. I love what Bob Goff said. He said, on your worst day, when you have messed up the most, Jesus calls you beloved. That's the kind of God we have. And when we accept that gift, when we accept the gift of what God now makes us and says about us, it changes how we view ourselves. Right? Did you know that self-love is a biblical idea? I mean, there's plenty in my theological camp that would talk about how bad self-love is. But Jesus said, here, here's the greatest commandment. Love God, with all your heart, soul, strength, right? And what else? Love your neighbor as what? As yourself, which always messes with my mind a little bit. Because so much of the theology I've inherited is you are a wretch and you are all of these terrible things. Now go love yourself as you would love your neighbor. So do I have to love my neighbor by treating them like a wretch and this terrible thing? Like it becomes this screwy puzzle to, to sometimes solve, but, but we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, all of that, it certainly is in the position of what it looks like in Christ. But in Christ, I have purpose. I have worth. I have value. I have dignity that comes from that. I, I'm more than my mistakes in Christ. I'm, I'm loved. I'm important. <laughs> I have a title in God's family. I fully acknowledge it's from God's abundant, amazing mercy and grace that he tied on the cross to reconcile me back to him and to give me all of those. But, but now I can live out of that, of who I am. Sinner Chris, that's not who I am anymore. Broken Chris, that's not my identity anymore. I'm loved. I'm a child. And it's not just that we are the people who receive God's love and just sit there enjoying that, but we also become the people of love. It provides both the source and example to love others. How do we love others? Well, I will say it's not from me. Believe me, you do not want me to love from the love that just comes from me alone because I, I, don't, I don't have good love. I have sarcasm. And I have, that's probably it, it's probably just sarcasm. <laughs> and believe me, you don't, you don't want Chris's love in your life. <laughs> but how am I able to love people? Because of, because of the source and the example. I've received love. I, I know the source of it. And it is starting to transform how I view myself. And it's starting to transform who I am. Now I can give grace and mercy. I can be the guy of grace and mercy. Maybe I was the guy of revenge. That's who I was. <laughs> and in my own power, that's who I still am. A guy of getting my own way, of putting myself first. But now I also have the source and example. And God's love works through us. And this is why God came. The story of Christmas is not a self-help story. The New Testament doesn't turn out to be a self-help book. It's not like we open it up and says, well, you can do this on your own. Just read this book, and it'll turn out okay. 
No, it, it says, left to our own devices, we're stuck in sin and brokenness. We're stuck in the chains of that. It's never going to work. And in the midst of all that, God's love caused him to come that night and be born of Mary, the Savior for our sin on Christmas. And there's a unique beauty then when we start to love others as well. You know how you love your other brothers and sisters in Christ? You know how to do that really, really well. I think we do it how God does it. And perhaps it's not by telling them what to do. Um, but, but as hit on already, it's, it's about who they are. Too often we're told by others that God, what God wants us to do and not do. Um, Goff talks about this a lot in one of his books. We're told we shouldn't drink or cuss or watch certain movies. We're told what, that we have to have these quiet times in the morning, talk to strangers about a relationship with God. We're told we should want to go on mission trips or witness to people. And sometimes we do it, even if we don't even know what the words mean. And often it's just for a while. After long enough, what looks like faith isn't really faith anymore. It's compliance. And more compliance turns us into actors. And rather than making decisions ourselves, we know the lines of the script that someone else has told us, that has been handed to us. We sacrifice our ability to decide for ourselves. We, <clears throat> the fix for all this is, uh, is, an easy, uh, is as easy as the problem is hard. So instead of loving people that way, we love people how God did. Consistently in the Bible. We'll become in our lives, whoever the people we love the most say we are. God looks at Moses and says, you're going to be a leader. And Moses became one. He told Noah he was a sailor. He became one. He told Sarah she was a mother. And she became one. He told Peter he was a rock. And he led the church. He told Jonah he would be fish food. And well, he was. And if we want to love people the way that God loves people, we let God's spirit do the, the talking when it comes to telling people what they want and behavior and stuff like that. All the directions we often give people aren't getting them to feel, uh, 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 getting them to the feet of Jesus. And more often, the unintended results is that it leads them back to actually to us over and over and over. And when we make ourselves the monitor of people's behavior, we, we risk having approval become more important than Jesus' love for them. We try to force compliance, but it only lasts a while, usually till the person gets a different set of directions from someone else. And, and faith lasts a lifetime that will carry us through the most difficult times without a spoken word. And telling people what they should want or should turn into turns uh, us into a bunch of sheriffs, a behavior modification sheriffs. And people who are becoming love lose the badge and give away grace instead. And you start to tell people you meet who they're becoming. And trust that God will help people to find their way towards beautiful things in their lives without you. If I keep telling someone, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved, over and over and over, and you are a person of love, even when they're not acting that way, what eventually becomes true for them? I mean, this is like psychology 101. It's like developmental psychology practice 101. And that's what God does to us all the time. Every time we open this book, 
Here are the list of sins. This is what you guys used to be. This is what you are now. And God does that to us. And he makes us these new things and says, this is what you are now. What about those who don't know Jesus yet? I mean, yes, we've, we've been called to love our neighbors. Most of us know those facts pretty well. I, I want to challenge us on the, on the next step to that. Because Jesus also told us to love another crowd, right? Our enemies. Now, most of us would be like, well, I can get off pretty easy. I don't really have any enemies. I'm not mad at North Korea or Russia or China. I don't think they're mad at me. Um, but perhaps Jesus meant something different when he said the term enemies. Perhaps he meant that we would love people that we don't understand or the ones we disagree with or the ones who are flat wrong on a couple of things. I have plenty of those people in my life. And I bet you do too. I, I might be those people for you. I don't know. But in the simplest of terms, Jesus came to earth to declare that he would turn God's enemies into his friends. He didn't do that with fancy words and lectures or waving his finger at people who had made their mistakes. He convinces us and he convinces the world with love, without fear and shame. He doesn't raise his voice to shout over the noise in our lives. He lets the power of love do the work in talking for him. And we have the same shot in other people's lives today that we would find a way to love difficult people more. (laughs) And you'll be living the life that Jesus actually called us to live. Go find someone you've been avoiding and give away extravagant love to them this season. You'll learn more about God. You'll learn more about your neighbor. You'll learn more about your enemies. And honestly, you'll learn a whole lot more about your faith through the process. Find someone you think you're wrong, someone you disagree with, someone who isn't like you at all, and decide that love that person the way you would want Jesus to love you. Jesus never said doing these things would be easy. He just said they work. (laughs) We don't need an agenda for somebody else. You can have an agenda for yourself, that's fine. But we don't need an agenda for them. Because we don't lead people to Jesus. Jesus leads people to Jesus. Our job is to love them and to tell them about the love of Jesus. So as we come back and reflect on Christmas... It's not just a holiday. It's an every day. Every day we recognize that the reason for the season, the reason, the incarnation, the reason he came in the first place was sin. The mess that every human was caught in, every human contributed to, all of us. And the motivation for the season was the love that God has. God is now continuing to remake this world through people like you and me who repent and believe in faith in what he has done, who responded to that gift of God's love into our life. That's what he's doing. So I want to close with this historic poem that maybe you're familiar with. It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, and bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till the puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more? And this Christmas, may we see how it's a little bit more. Let us see the love of the Father has for us, the depth that Christ showed his love in being willing to die for our sins and the feel of the loving presence of the Holy Spirit in us. I'm going to invite Sarah up now to 
walk with us with a chance to really sit in this really important, deep truth.